hubbub, a chaotic din caused by a crowd of people. Welcome back to Season 2, um, Episode 4 um, of the Director's Hub Founders Support Club, um, which is sponsored by the Sussex Business Show, the premier game-themed trade show event in Sussex. Our fourth guest of the day is Pippa Crouch of Global OHS, and we're going to be doing a talk on uh, duty of care. And it's a talk about minimising the frequency of sick days and making your staff more healthy and fit to carry on with their jobs on a day-to-day basis. Joining me today um, is Faye Miller of Brighton Cakes, our co-host, and myself is Sunny Cutting of Network Express. And welcome, Pippa. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here, Pippa. So, I mean, tell us a bit about OHS or occupational health, because I've heard that term banded around loads. I know it's really important, but I'm not entirely sure what it involves. So perhaps you could sort of elaborate, first of all, what occupational health is for those those idiots like me who don't fully understand it. Not at all. It's a it's basically it's a specialist branch of medicine that looks at health in the workplace. So my job is quintessentially to look after the worker and their health and to make sure that they're firstly fit to do the job, that they stay fit whilst they're in post and that all of their their health needs are met. So as an employer, you end up with the best version of that person working for you. We're quite often confused with occupational therapy um, and the difference is is occupational therapy will go in and fit a commode for your nan or look at work uh, home home (laughs) adjustments. Um, Whereas we don't quite do that. We look more towards the workplace. So no commodes in offices then at this stage? Not Well, I don't know. It might be soon, but um, not at the moment. (laughs) Could be a reasonable adjustment. Yeah. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. Yeah. So is it um, all size companies or does it tend to be larger companies that get you to come in, look at whether people's desks are set up correctly for them, whether they have back problems? Is it, tell me a bit more about how it works or the kind of companies that you deal with. So every company can access occupational health, whether it's through the um, OH provision through the NHS or private. Um, private is beginning to, to boom a bit more, thankfully. Uh, but it's looking at uh, what I call the three Ps. So it's promotion, protection and prevention. So health promotion looks at uh, making sure that your staff are healthy, fit numbers and looking at you know, things like, sorry, know your numbers and doing high weight blood pressures, uh, getting your staff to actively engage in taking responsibility and accountability for their own health. There's the preventative side, which looks at workplace risks. So do you work in a dusty environment? Is it noisy? Are there uh, musculoskeletal risks? Are there risks to the skin? And we would come in and assess those those risks to the worker by looking at lung function or hearing checks uh, or just simple checks of the skin to make sure that there's nothing untoward uh, developing. Um, and the last one is, oh, what have I said? I said prevention, promotion and protection. Um, so again, that's looking at making sure that your staff and your workforce are safeguarded, their health is safeguarded. So are they off sick? How do we get them back into work? And how do we really get the best version of them out? So you said you mentioned there that it's becoming more prevalent in the private sector. So this is something that is more public or started off being public sector based, was it then? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, back in the 18, 1843, I believe, it was Philippa Flower Day was the first industrial nurse. Um, but actually, that was in Coleman's Mustard Factory. Oh, wow. And then uh, the NHS kind of caught on. Uh, but it's becoming a lot more prevalent 
nowadays. Uh, in the last budget, they have allocated an extra 25 million to SME subsidies to try and encourage smaller smaller workforces to, to engage more with occupational health. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose it's it's a thing where you, you have to spend money on occupational health, but the amount you spend on occupational health probably is dwarfed by the amount you'd spend on sick days and treating people that have illnesses or dare I say it, compensation if they get injured at work or something like that so it, it's better to do that preventative step take absolutely. that absolutely then face the consequences I suppose yeah absolutely so you've obviously got the regulatory body the HSE who will come in and look at prosecuting you if you're not fulfilling your legal requirements uh, but also you've got civil claims and um, um, and industrial claims as well which which will go through if there's been a, a failing in the workplace or if somebody's got harmed as a result of negligence i mean just in the uk last year we lost 185.6 million cool. days from sickness so that's, that's a, a huge amount of it's an astonishing amount yeah. of the time I mean, that's up from 35.4 million from the year before. So it's a it's a real, real issue at the moment. Sorry, did you say it's that's just gone from 35 to 180 or all? It's increased by 35. Oh, it's increased by 35. Sorry, 35.8 million oh, since okay. 2021. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That's a yeah. massive hike. Yeah, and I think it's been in, in the impact of COVID. And we've seen that people's health have deteriorated as a result. But, you know, at the moment, we've got 2.5 million people out of work or on long-term sickness absence. So... Yeah. With cost of living crisis, everything else spiralling. We really need to look at bringing bringing some of our workforce back into the work. Yeah, I guess we do. Um, so, how did you get into it? Where did you first? Have you always done occupational health for your career, or have you transitioned from something completely different? So, my background's nursing. Um, yeah. You have to be in medicine clearly to, to work yeah. in occupational health. Uh, so, I started off as a cancer nurse. I worked in London for quite a few years. And then, gosh, I think it was about 2009, we moved down to Sussex. And I decided that I wanted children and a nine to five. Yeah. So, I looked at moving into to occupational health then. Uh, it wasn't quite as straightforward as I thought. Why not? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> you say that with <laughs> apprehension. Uh, it, it's one of those, we're a bit of a weird profession where you have to be working in the industry um, before you can go apply for the, the qualification to work in occupational health. But then to apply for the qualification, you've also got to be working in the industry. So it becomes this, this vicious cycle that we can't recruit nurses because to work you've got to have the degree but you can't get the degree unless you're working in the that's field just a bit that's messed ridiculous up, that's messed up isn't it completely so at the moment there's 3008 qualified occupational health nurses on part three of the register in england scotland wales and northern ireland it's it's bonkers numbers that's 3008 that, that for the whole country mm-hmm. that's not very many is it really no no so, so the occupational registered occupational health nurses sort of do they go into all different organizations or do they run own businesses or well, how is it's, it is it a mixture of yeah both? it's a complete mix i mean yeah. that's what i love so much about our job yeah. you can make it as much or as little as you want so yeah. you can you can work in a big private organization you can work in the nhs or you can do what i did and set up independently yeah. um and it's you know the world is really your oyster so what do you love about it what made you want to set up your own business uh, I just, I think I'm a little bit of a control freak. I was working for a large organisation and I thought, you know what, I can do this and I can I can do it better but keep it smaller yeah. um, and actually try and make a, a change. It was when you work in a large organisation, kind of it can be a bit of a, 
a whirly gig it's a you know it's a non-stop revolving door you've got people in the whole time and I felt I wasn't making enough of a change so when we set up our business model we kind of halved the amount of patients that or people that we saw just so when we do see people you've got time to really get to know them get involved in their issues refer on to GPs get specialists involved and actually change people's lives so it's um it sounds like it really does have a, an impact on people. Do you find that when you go into businesses and you've got people that, I don't know, perhaps have certain ailments or aches and pains which they don't give a second thought to? because Well, they do, but, you know, because they have the shoulders hurting or their backs hurting or, you know, and then you can make suggestions within the workplace that can make a demonstrable difference to them. So that people must be really grateful at times that they, they get to meet you. Yep, I think it's either, it's a bit half and half. So either you can make a massive change to somebody's life. Um, so I always think you can either make HR entirely happy or you make the employee entirely happy. There's yeah. not normally a, <laughs> a meet in the middle. Um, so yes, so you can go in and just small things, just small postural differences in the workplace, setting up a display station slightly differently. Um, it's all about education, so ensuring people understand the impact of their health conditions, how it impacts on them at work, and getting their managers to understand, because I think 90% of our job is about communication. So if the employee can communicate effectively their needs to the organisation, then the organisation can support them and everybody wins. So are some organisations less receptive than others, would you say? Or some are really on board with it and others are like, we want you in, we want you to do all this stuff, but actually, oh, it's going to cost us a bit too much, we're not sure now. Or, do you have any barriers like that you have to deal with or objections to overcome? I think quite often it's more the health promotion is, is more difficult. That's the, the preventive, because yeah. in... In best will in the world, occupational health is almost a demand failure led model. You know, we wait until somebody breaks or we wait until we're in crisis and then they'll do the referral into the yeah. service. We don't look at the, 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 the promotional side. So in the UK, we're probably about 10 to 15 years behind the rest of Europe in terms of OH provision. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, really, really far behind. Um, and I think if we just took a step back and actually invested more in employee health and well-being and actually stopped people breaking in the first place, then overall we would have a far more productive uh, workforce. That's interesting. So it's more reactive mm. in the UK than it is proactive, which is in, in Europe. Yeah. So we basically work our staff like dogs until they break and then you come in and sort them out. Is yeah. that, that's yeah. really bad, isn't it? It's it that's kind of backwards, isn't it? Yeah. From a psychological point of view, the duty of care should be there first and foremost but it doesn't seem to be no and I don't think it's a, a conscious thing I don't think uh, UK employers set up to break staff I think it's just something we've always done and then occupational health is a bit of a knee-jerk reaction at the 11th hour of or oh, what do we do now rather than saying okay well you know I'll give you a, a uh, an example, we uh, we were called in after 15 people were referred in for workstation issues in this, this beautiful new office. And uh, we'd been working with the client for about 10 years. Uh, and I said, why did you not involve us at concept stage? You know, we're all ergonomics uh, specialists here and we could have helped design the setup and how it all flows. Uh, their view was we wanted it to look pretty. Uh, and it did, it looked gorgeous, but they had these beautiful wave-shaped desks. Of course, everyone was set up incorrectly. So by going in and doing the changes, it then cost them roughly about £150,000 to, wow. to change absolutely everything. Yeah. 
didn't look quite as pretty, but then they had staff that were there. So they should have got you in earlier on and it might have saved them a bit of cash then. Yes, absolutely. There's a lesson to be learned there already, (laughs) isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So you you talk about, like, we're not very good in this country. It's all reactive, more reactive than promotional. Is it changing? Is there going to be a a sort of sea change in the industry, do you think, towards that more promotional health and well-being? I mean, certain companies seem to be better at it than others. Mm. Um, I know when I was working full-time, the company I worked for was rubbish at that sort of thing you know and it was just but I know others that were really good at that sort of thing but it doesn't as you say it doesn't seem to be the norm but it would be nice to see if that that is going to shift over time I think Um, it will I think it's high on the government agenda so with my other hat I'm I'm the the chair of occupational health a group called COPA who are the commercial occupational health providers association so we've been lobbying government along with the society of occupational medicine to look at improving access into occupational health I mean at the moment only 50 percent of employees have access to OH so that's half of our workforce can access it Um, and in the budget just gone Jeremy Hunt kindly promised tons of money which they were going to throw at occupational health to look at targeting the SME market and really really pushing the OH agenda. Well I guess it has a knock-on effect for them on the NHS doesn't it so if they you know if if people are getting injured at work or having problems at work then they're going to be seeing their doctors more they're going to be needing physio or treatment or whatever aren't they that yeah that's going to be taken out of the nhs if they can get it sorted out early doors i guess and likewise you know that 2.5 million that we've got currently off of work we know that work is good for us or healthy work is good for us Uh, it's a bit of an old stat but um uh, back in 2006 i believe it was they said if you are not back to work within six months there is only a 50 percent chance of getting you back into work in any capacity really wow by 12 months that drops to about 10 percent why is that do you think I think once you're out of the routine of work, because we know that having a routine is so good for us, that once you're out of that routine, it becomes people I okay I used to have this phrase that Jeremy Carl and Loose Women were actually government sponsored initiatives to get people back <laughs> into work because there's only so much daytime tv you can watch before you're like I'm going back now yeah. oh god it does your head in after a while yeah. <laughs> it's quite entertaining on occasion yes have you ever seen um Oh, God, it's like the Australian immigration ones. You ever watch those? Those are very funny. I could actually watch those for quite a few few weeks, I think, but maybe not six months, definitely not six months. <laughs> yes. So what do, you, what do you love about your job most then, Pippa? What, what really lights your fire, so to speak? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it's various things, actually. I love the variety. So no two days are ever the same. You know, one day I can be in the VIP lounge of the O2 doing hearing checks. The next day I can be with somebody who's got significant mental health issues and I can make a real impact and a, and a change to their lives. So it's the fact that, that nothing, you know, I go into work and it's there's just so much variety and there's so many angles to go off and do whatever you want to do. Day after I might be doing flu jabs or vaccinations. Yeah. So it's just great what I do. Yeah, you certainly sound very passionate about <laughs> it. Anyway, all the time I've met you, you always seem to be really passionate about your business, which is lovely to hear. Um, so um, moving on, um, what's it like um, a sort of day in your life if you're, you know, you're working? Tell us, tell us how the sort of, you know, if someone calls you up and says, I need help with occupational health, where do you go from there? A company calls you up. What's, what's the stages you'd run through with them? Well, what we find quite interesting is quite often companies will ring up and they go, we need occupational health. And you'd be like, great, tell me what you need. Uh, don't know, haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, and that's great because you've almost got a bit of a blank canvas so you can go in and say right well what are your risks what's your risk assessment say what are you exposing to staff to what do you do uh, and that you can basically flow it from there but we won't ever do health surveillance for example unless there's a risk assessment underpinning why we're going in doing what we're doing so there has to be uh, a, a demonstrative risk um, and then they'll say, oh, we'd quite like to do, you know, you do some mental health talks. Could we tap into those? So we're more than happy to do that. We do a couple of talks on, we call it the Big M, which is about menopause, because that's quite topical at the moment. Um, so we'll help companies look at their policies. I'm not a particularly advocate of a menopause policy, but if they really want us to, we can support with that. And we can look at training for managers and also awareness for staff of how to, how to combat it. And those are always quite quite interesting a menopause policy is becoming more common then yes, yes really and yes, um, yes. um, why out of interest are you not an advocate of them i feel that it's if you've got a good company culture and you treat all your staff well and are kind then you shouldn't need a specific menopause they'll support policy. you anyway basically yeah, yeah. Now, about 10, 15 years ago, we had HIV policies. Yeah. I mean, if you went into a workplace now and you picked up, oh, where's your HIV policy or your hepatitis C policy, we'd all have a heart attack. That's a bit, dis- that's discriminatory now, isn't it? Yeah. Surely to do yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, so, but that was all the rage 10 years ago. Yeah. Everybody had to have a policy. And I think, or I hope, that's what we'll see with menopause. That it's yeah. flavour of the month at the moment. But actually, if we can just engender or capture the essence of being kind and supporting staff that we won't need all these specific policies because where does it end let's do a prostate cancer policy you could have a policy for literally every condition under the sun couldn't you or well just absolutely everything a cut finger policy even you know if you want to get really ridiculous about it and it doesn't teach that manager how to have that conversation with that employee oh hang on i'm just gonna go and get the policy Uh, (laughs) paragraph two says i should ask you how are you feeling you know it's yeah, let let me just search through this massive box of policies <laughs> two hours later. Not, still pages. not found the right yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, it gets a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? I suppose things like that are also so varied as well, like whether it's menopause or diabetes or back pain. It's so different for, you know, like one person might breeze through menopause without any symptoms at all. So somebody else might be really severely debilitated by it. And the same with diabetes. Some people have it very well controlled, others don't, and so mm-hmm. on. So I guess it's quite hard to have one policy fits all for those sort of things anyway. And the fundamental principles are all the same. It's talk to your staff and find out what it yeah. uh, what they need and whether you can accommodate that in the workplace. So it's better to have like an overall occupational health or uh, policy or culture of well-being and health within the workplace. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well-being should be the golden thread that runs through every yeah. every policy. So you know, we, I mean, obviously this podcast is about duty of care. Um, so legally, employers have a duty of care to a degree um, to look after their employees, don't they? Yeah. Um, how far does I suppose occupational health come under the the legal side of it, or is it is it all voluntary? Is it a bit of a grey area, really, to sort of. No, Health and Safety at Work Act is yeah. quite clear. It shows that uh, employers have uh, a duty of care to safeguard yeah. the, the health and welfare of their employees. What we do is we support them with that. Yeah. So, for example, if there is um, underdoing, undertaking health surveillance, for example, is a legal requirement. So it isn't something that's voluntary. So if you are working in a steel factory and it's really noisy, yeah. your staff have to have, as one of the control measures, hearing tests. If they decide that they don't really fancy it, it's not really something they can opt in or out of. Um, it, you would never walk.
walk onto a building site and say, I don't fancy wearing my hat today because I've got a ponytail and everyone go, oh, that's fine, just come <laughs> on. The same applies for your, for your hearing tests. So without that, without going through it, your employer is, is within their rights to say, well, we'll look at whether we can redeploy you to another area. But if we can't, sorry, you, you know, you're, you're not fit to do your role. Yeah. So how's your company growing at the moment? It sounds like it's all going really well. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's a that's a bit of an issue in itself. We are growing exponentially. So it's So there's a real demand for the service then. Yes, yes. Demand is is there. It's just trying to train the staff and 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 keep yeah. up with the demand. So Is that coming back to the problem of like not enough mm. nurses being trained in occupational? Yeah, I was yeah, just about to say exactly the same thing, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So and the problem is is you know, you you train to be a nurse. So you've already done a degree pathway and then you have to go on and do a specialist degree in public health. So it's quite a long process to become um, an OH health provider. So is it another full sort of three-year degree that you've yeah. got to do on top of the nursing degree as well? Wow. Yeah. That is a lot of... Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I'm saying you must have a lot of regulatory stuff that you have to do as well on top of it. Yeah, yeah. So we're um, accredited through Seacross, which is the the it's kind of like an ISO for occupational health. So we have to make sure that we adhere to all the standards of that, um, along training our staff. So we run uh, a training program for occupational health advisors, and each year we'll put uh, a new OHA through the degree pathway. But because of the cost, it's it's prohibitive to put more than one through a year at the moment. Gosh, that's insane. So you can't keep up with demand and you can't train people up quick enough to catch up with that demand at the moment. No. Wow. So how do you manage it? (laughs) Let's be fair. It's it's not (laughs) lots of gin. gin. Uh, It's not just like me. It's it's you know it's the whole it's across the whole industry where we're really struggling. So the one of the things that came out of the government budget this year was they're looking at regulations. So whether every OH provider needs to be regulated through CQOS or CQC, which is Quality Care Commission, uh, which I think will put in massive barriers for a lot of the the SMEs within our industry. Uh, um, But they're also recognised that we do need to, a, a formalised training programme. Do you find that, um, that, you, that you deal with larger scale blue chip corporate clients or smaller SMEs and is there, a, is there more of a, is one harder than the other to deal with? Not really. I'm, I prefer the SMEs because you can really get to know and understand their business. So I fully believe in adapting our model to suit what they need rather than square peg round hole approach. And once you understand their culture, you can align your recommendations and your reports back on what, what works for them. Um, the larger companies are also great because there's sometimes more scope for bigger reasonable adjustments or you know more expensive reasonable adjustments because of the size of the, the organization or the company so it's a it's been half and half i like smes because they tend to pay better <laughs> and more on time quicker yes yeah, yeah quicker you know 90 days forever. and stuff end yeah. of month yes yeah. <laughs> i suppose because they're smaller maybe they can react more they're more agile in that respect you haven't got to go through x layers of organisation treacle yeah. yeah sort it out so. treacle I like that yeah it's a good expression actually it is like wading through treacle uh, at times um, so I've totally lost my train of thought actually I'm oh, sorry we just something. went into treacle and Brighton <laughs> we just went into cake mode didn't we yeah we did go into cake mode with it it's terrible occupational health cakes I yeah, like that yeah, part of the wellbeing yeah. strategy yeah <laughs> actually it reminds me years ago when I did work for the horrible employer who was quite frankly shit at occupational health and anything like that um, we had a 
uh, a trolley that used to come around every morning at 11 o'clock laden with lovely pasties and <laughs> sausage rolls <laughs> and these gorgeous chocolate orange cookies. Of course, we all used to buy loads of it. Um, would that be allowed under occupational health now? Is that really sort of not helping your well-being, or quite is frankly? Taboo? Is that taboo now? Oh, gosh, no, that's mandatory, I would have thought. <laughs> I know when I first started my first day at Brighton and Hove Council as their OH and wellbeing manager, I turned up with um, 24 Dunkin' Donuts and yeah. they just looked at me in health and safety and went, that's a great start. And I was like, <laughs> not entirely sure if you're being sarcastic. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> I suppose everything in moderation, isn't it? And that, but uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's more about when you're looking at shift workers, so yeah. actually looking at their diets and can you support. So we've done a couple, a bit of work with canteens where we've rag-rated food and you know done some initiatives around it. But people are adults, I, I view them, and there's, there is a large amount of personal accountability and responsibility on us. So yeah. There's a lot the employer can do, but actually we as individuals can do a lot as well. Yeah, but that's, that's quite hard sometimes, I think, because um, I have uh, one of my very close friends. She doesn't work for them now, but she did work for a very large social media company who shall remain nameless. But in their offices in London, like she was telling me that they have stations on every level where they've got you know loads of food and you can just help yourself to whatever you want all the time and they've got the healthy options there you know but they've also got the unhealthy options and then they've got the free bar as well and she said you start off like being really good like I'm just gonna have the salad and the water and then you know a few months in you're like I'm gonna have the gin and the chocolate cake <laughs> you know and she did put on loads of weight as a result of that because it was just there all the time and the temptation was just too great so you know in some way in some respects I suppose the employer was being you know really good in the providing with food but also um, not always the best options for them as well, perhaps. Makes me wonder how much money they hemorrhaged through uh, through gin and cheeseburgers. A lot, because they had to make redundancies. So, yeah, I guess they probably did. Maybe they should have cut back on the office supplies. But I guess it's a fine line, like you say, it's down to personal responsibility. And I suppose not everyone is going to reach for the cake every single time in that respect. Mm. Um, but, you know, as, as, an, as an employer, what are the sort of minimum things you would say that an employer should be doing the common for all employers I suppose because I guess it's going to vary from industry to industry so someone as you say working running a steel mill for example they're going to have very stringent health and safety controls around production an office is going to be very different to that but there must be some common threads that run through what you do that they would they would have to do to sort of enable and make sure their employees are safe and healthy I suppose. I think it's just looking at the trying to map out the whole of the employee journey so from cradle to grave so looking at pre-employment pre-placements what caliber of staff are you recruiting do they have any health needs before they start what adjustments can you put in to place to get the best you know best out of that employee then when they're in role are there any specific requirements that are associated to the role so any health surveillance that's needed do they have any immunization so do they work with blood for example and need hepatitis Mm. b um or then looking at health promotion so is that part of what you want to offer looking at case management so why are people going off sick how do we get them back into Mm. work and presenteeism which is we know a massive issue Mm. at the moment so why is somebody not functioning at their best is there an underlying health problem can we get something in the workplace to help them and then when people aren't fit enough to do their jobs looking at how they exit them from the business either through ill health or retirement schemes so do you find with occupational health that obviously it makes a you see it makes a demonstrable difference you you've said that you have you love seeing it when people have a real difference in their working lives and their their lives are transformed in that respect um 
more generally, do the companies then see a drop in that absenteeism and the sick days and everything, the ones that do invest in occupational health? Um, oh, I think that's a bit of a, I'd love to say yes. Uh, but there are so many factors in play in looking at why people go off yeah. sick and reducing sickness absence anyway. I'd love to say that occupational health is the panacea, panacea that prevents any sickness absence. No, well, it's not a panacea, it. but it plays a decent part in it. It really does. Alongside, you know, getting them, you know, increasing prog productivity. Because yeah. I guess if you've got happy, happy healthy employees, they're going to work more productively than those that are disgruntled or got an injury or feeling, you yeah. know, they've got mental health issues or whatever it may be. And it's about raising issues. So if the company then knows about issues or concerns, um, then they can address them. Quite often, a lot of the workforce is, is, is quiet, so so no one knows what the concerns are. I guess that's the thing with being an employee. Sometimes you're scared to say anything because you think, well, if I say anything, they're probably going to boot me out. So yeah. I guess that's always going to be a fear for some. And again, that comes back to company ethos and the way they, the, the company culture, I guess, the way they portray themselves to their staff. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I find that I probably overwork a lot of the time, and I'm sure that most other people are, are, are kind of the same. So, well, if you run your own business, it's like you give up a what, forty hour working week for a sixty hour working week, isn't it? Or a ninety hour yeah, yeah, working week? Yeah, however, it's <laughs> it the curse of the self-employed, isn't it? Exactly. So, I mean, for yourself, Pippa, does work overwhelm you, and um, do you find like a mental balance between work and personal life or is there is there I not such a thing? I would love to say yes but that would be an absolute lie that my family <laughs> would completely say yep if you cut me in half I think I would bleed global so yep um, I take my job way too seriously and I'm way too invested in it but I love what I do and it's it's really hard to step back. Yeah I think when you're passionate about your business <clears throat> excuse me you, you do put in the extra hours to to make it work. Yeah and it's people's lives at the end of the day it's people's health I mean <laughs> we had a, a a card come through the post the other day which said thank you for saving my life um wow. and uh, one of the nurses was on the phone doing consultation with a chap and he said oh i've got a bit of chest pain uh oh, i've got i'm just gonna find my indigestion tablets and she said she spent about 20 minutes just mapping out his symptoms and she goes i need you to go to a and e now oh wow it turns out he was having a he was having a, he was having heart a heart attack, attack. yeah wow gosh so she did really save his life yes <laughs> Literally, yeah. Okay. Actually, I have a funny story about that as well. No, oh, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? I have a funny story about heart attack. A funny story about death. Here no. we go. Yeah. Well, it's my stepdad. He used to run his own business, so he's high stress and everything. He's a bit overweight, and uh, he started getting chest pains one day. So he drove himself to the then A and E in Horsham. It's disappeared now. Um, with these chest pains and driving around oh, chest pains and then he spent 10 minutes driving around looking for a sodding car parking space rather than just going in and they eventually checked him out and it was a pulled muscle so after all that it wasn't a heart attack luckily <laughs> well I'm glad he's okay yeah he's absolutely fine so yeah it's not always but yeah it's brilliant that, that she spotted that and uh, what an amazing thing wow it could have been so different couldn't mm. it so what do you do when you're not in the business then when you're not working in your business what do you do to relax and um how do you chill out? Or don't you? Do you just focus on <laughs> occupational health? No, um, I cycle. So I love cycling. Oh, um, brilliant. Quite often I'm out in Mallorca trying to soak up the sun and, and do a bit of cycling. And mainly cake eating, if I'm being brutally honest. Oh, well. That's what we see on social media. Yeah. That's what we see. We don't, we see us in cafes. I see you in cafes, yep. but mainly with cake. I take 22 different cycling outfits, put one on each day, walk <laughs> to the cafe shop, and then just, you know, I have guilt-free cake. I thought you were going to say, I take 22 cakes to me in a Dunkin' Donut box. <laughs> <laughs> I bring those home. <laughs> so, um... 
how many kids have you got then? How many children have you got? I've got two. Two. Boys or girls, and how old are they? Oh, I've got two amazing young people. So I've got yeah. Freya and Georgia who are 16 and 18. Yeah. Georgia's finished her last GCSE today and Freya finished her last A-level yesterday. Oh, wow. So. Oh, congrats. Yay. Are they interested in occupational health or nursing or anything, Absolutely do you think? Absolutely not. No. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm by you, From the age of 14, both of them have been um, back scanning documents for patient records. So uh. they never want to work in. Well, I think Georgia's going on to do uh, medicine. She wants to become a doctor. But oh, amazing. I've, I've scarred Freya too much now. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a shame. So did you always want to go into nursing then? Was that something that you were really keen on right from an early age? Or did you have any other career ideas before that at all? Not really. I was a lifeguard prior to, to going into nursing. Um, and I went into nursing about uh, 19, 18, oh, wow. 19. Yeah. So, so straight away, really. Yeah. What areas did you, did you specialise in any areas or? I was a cancer nurse. So I worked, oh, you said you were a cancer yeah. nurse, yes. So I worked in oncology up in one of the big London hospitals, which had the Teenage Cancer Trust unit. So we had a, a male ward, 28-bedded male ward, a 14-bedded female unit, and then the Teenage Cancer Trust as well. Wow, that must have been quite a challenging role at times, or was it uplifting at times and heartbreaking at others? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was a roller coaster. But it's weird because they are people you love. Well, they, yeah. they become people you love, but yeah. they're not people you know. So that you've got that divide, whereas yeah. people have always said, how can you do that role? And it's it's because it's not your mum, it's not your dad. Yeah. So you can keep that professional integrity and provide them with the, yeah. the, the level of care that they need. Yeah. So that sort of caring nature has been there right from the very start I know it's part of your career but it's followed you right the way through now hasn't it to, to occupational health as well it's just lovely <laughs> it's really nice even if your kids do moan that you're doing it too much but yes <laughs> to everybody else I'm great part of my family yeah uh, I, think that, I think that's kids <laughs> things kids just do that don't they especially teenagers so I get the same from mine oh mum you're always working you never spend any time with us I'm like what I spend loads of time with you but you don't want to spend time with me because they're far more interested to be on their devices or with their mates unless they want money Actually, it was during COVID, my daughter said something that was really poignant. She said, um, you know, mum, you're not around. And I was like, what do you mean? It's COVID. I'm here all the time. And she went, you're here, but you're not present. Oh. And I was like, actually, you're, you're bang on the money there. Yeah. Int- uh, yeah, I've got twins and they're nine. So, yeah, they haven't got to teenage years. Not yet. But I'm <laughs> sure they will at some stage. It's not, an, it's not a place that I'm looking forward to, if I'm honest. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not, not well, from my personal experience, it's a, it's a very roller coaster experience. That's for sure. But um, I think we should ask you some personal questions Ooh. now, Pippa. If you're dun, up dun, for it. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay. Um, let's go for what's your biggest failure and what did you learn from that experience? I can't remember what I put down now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you put joining a large uh, uh, occupational health provider and then realising that bigger is not always better. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah. I think my initial one was failing a triathlon, not finishing a triathlon. And I couldn't quite remember uh, what I, my, my team said. You can't say that. It makes you sound really stupid. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, I think why I started my company was I'd been working for this really large provider and I thought that going into work for a giant organisation would be magical and um, I learned very quickly, as you just said, that bigger isn't always better and sometimes keeping it smaller and keeping it personable is, is, is the right way to go. Why, why was it not, what, what things about it um, you didn't like? And you said bigger's not always better. Was it just management issues or people clashes or what sort of things were 
Say it that. was a numbers game, I think. Yeah. So they were, it was too many people seen per day. We were doing too many contracts. I was spread too thin and I felt I was failing everything um, all the time because I wasn't committed to one thing and giving 100%. I was kind of, you know, it was all very reactive. I was waiting for something to go wrong and then dashing in to fix it. Um, I just remember one afternoon when I'd filled up the company car. They don't know this, so hopefully they won't recognise who they are. Um, when I filled up the company car with, with diesel and it was a petrol car. Um, and I sat crying my eyes out on the side of the road. And I spoke to one of my friends and she said, no one ever went to their grave wishing they'd worked harder. She said, I'm just going to put that out there. And I resigned that afternoon. Yeah. And sounds like this is the best thing you ever did then. Yeah. Did you have a plan at that point to start your own business? Or would you just like, right, I said, I'm resigning and I'll figure it out afterwards. Or? It was a bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was there much gap between leaving that company and setting up your own? Or did you sort of go into it straight away, really? Went straight away. I yeah. think uh, it took about two years, I think, to get fully up and running. Yeah. And luckily, there's a load of agencies that you could work through. So anybody in my position that was looking to, to break free and to go independent you, you can do that because you can start picking up your own contracts but then you know still working through the agencies because yeah. we're in such high demand it's you know you can juggle your life and work it around what you need to do that's brilliant how did how did COVID affect what you do did did it change occupational health to a degree Massively. it's really weird actually because I expected um, referrals to go up I thought loads of people working from home we're going to have loads of presenteeism we're going to have loads of managers trying to micromanage their staff and people off with stress yeah. the referrals dropped off the edge of a cliff overnight mm. uh, and then the HSE said we couldn't go in to do face-to-face -face. Uh, we were trying to do telephone health surveillance which trying to do an audiogram via the phone is not the world's easiest <laughs> thing um, and then we made the decision that the companies that were running business as usual we would still go in we would just put in safeguards and lateral flow um, because it, it's very very difficult to do our job yeah, by telephone. Um, but initially, everything went very, very, very quiet. Uh, we were we were saved actually through LinkedIn. Thank you. Um, and I'd put out this rant on LinkedIn saying I'm happy to furlough in my entire team of doctors and nurses because there is no work for us to do. We can't get back into the NHS. Wow. We can't do anything. Um, and then somebody said, "Oh, do you do Facebook testing? And would you like the contract for the Nightingales?" So, um, so that kind of really kept wow. us afloat. So you, you mean the Nightingale hospitals that they had yep. set up? Gosh, that must have been a big contract. That must have been uh, a good one to get at the time when, as you say, you had yes, you were looking down a barrel of furlough. Yeah. So we, we did that, and we did a lot of private hospitals as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, that was a bit of an eye opener, seeing how the, the NHS supply chain worked exceptionally well for the NHS and not so well for the private hospitals that were supporting the NHS. So it was yeah, it was it was interesting times. Oh gosh, so. Back to the questions. Anyway, we got we digressed then, didn't we? But it's okay. We <laughs> what have, questions we, we should have we go time. for We're next, Sunny? We have we have time. What, what questions should we go for next then? Um, let's have a look. Well, it doesn't matter really. She's yeah, answered she's all answered all of them. Well, clearly, I can't read. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the most three most influential people in your life and how they impacted you. So, Dad, Mum kind of obvious, but you can tell us about those. Cat, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I was going. <laughs> what? <laughs> So yeah, so obviously my mum and my dad, they are, they're, they're amazing. My dad is, um, my dad's very business orientated, so I think he's given me my flair, but as my mum's very much like me, but very kind and very patient. So I try and take a bit from both of them, but actually it's technically not my cat, it's my partner's cat. Um, 
Yeah, my cat is really irritating. So the most influential part of it is she wakes me at normally three, four every morning nice. to, to get up. So it's like having this own alarm clock for me. That's just brilliant. Do you actually get up at three, four a.m. or do you kind of batter off and send her on her way? Sometimes, sometimes we do. I mean, most most mornings we're out the door by five. Some of the clients we start at three, some we start at four. Wow. So and why is it you're starting so early? Are you having to drive? distance to them or is it something different shift patterns perhaps yeah, yeah maybe it's, it's shift patterns so yeah we came up with this brilliant idea of rather than making night staff come in to see us on there when they should be sleeping we'd go in and see the night staff which at the time seemed like a brilliant idea yeah. but 10 years down the line is a lot harder Not now so much. it's all right in this weather when it's still quite light at that yes. time of the morning i can't imagine in the depths of winter when it's freezing cold it's much fun no <laughs> uh, so Going on from that, what does your morning routine look like? Coffee, coffee, and where's my coffee, I guess? So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of coffee. Oh, clearly I'm not advocating that you drink more than the recommended limit, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> Needs must sometimes, and I guess if you're getting up that early on a regular basis, then then you have to. Does that happen very often that you um, are, are getting up to go and see the night staff at, at that time? Yeah. I'd say we've got one technician who leaves. He normally he has to be on site most days for between six and seven. Yeah. Um, so, he, but he likes the early morning start. So we try and adjust. We try and find out what our staff like doing. Some yeah. are early birds. Some are some prefer the evening. So we can then try and match the contracts yeah. around the demands of our staff. Um, personally, I, I'm normally up at least four or five once or twice a week. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, going back to the occupational health thing quickly, you know, obviously you live and breathe it and you do it for other companies, but it sounds like it's also a fundamental part of, you know, you, you practice what you preach, don't you? You're, you're ensuring your staff are their needs met as well. We try to. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've got an amazing, amazing team. We're a bit like a, what's it, we're a bit like, we say we're a bit like a pack of penguins that we can all have a little <laughs> nibble out of each other and a little <laughs> peck, but anybody, I won't betide anybody else from outside the, you know, the penguin pack has a go. That sounds like siblings, doesn't it, <laughs> yes. really? Yes, it does. <laughs> so, moving on. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Mallorca for the cake. Yes. And the cycling, maybe. Possibly. I was, yeah. oh, I was yes. going to say, yes. and the cycling. <laughs> what happened to the cycling? It's only cake now. <laughs> it's cake, yeah. <laughs> the cycling. Do you cycle competitively at all? Have you raced, or is it just purely for your own pleasure that you do it? I used to race a fair bit. I used to be quite into triathlon. Um, and uh, I've done a couple of time trials as well. I haven't done any this year, but, uh, yeah. but I've got a, yeah. Triathlons, I've, I've never done one. I just thought they're really hardcore, actually. I've never ventured that far it depends i think on your outlook i mean i my partner is very very competitive so he'll race to compete whereas i race to eat so yeah as I say, so as long as i just get round and have a bit of a giggle um what that's cake fine. at the end yeah. <laughs> it seems to be a running yes, theme here yeah, absolutely my <laughs> mantra is was the ambulance called no then it was a good race <laughs> fair enough and uh, interesting you said here if you could have coffee with any historical figure who would you choose? And you chose Philippa Flaude, who you mentioned oh, at the yes, start. Yeah. I did. So tell us a bit more about her, because she sounds like she's quite inspirational and has a little has a had a little bit of an impact on what you do as well. Well, or, you know, as an inspiration, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just love the fact that they she was the first industry nurse. So bless her, her job was basically to pop around and have tea and cake with the the workers. You can have another cake here uh, with the There's workers. There's a theme, isn't there, with the cake? <laughs> <laughs> uh, with people who are off sick, and you know, take flowers and and just check that they were okay. And I I love that concept. And I think in in, in business now, that's something that we've we've kind of lost. It, you know, when you do the 
the welfare call quite often from HR is often perceived as, oh, hi, how are you when you're coming back to work? Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I love that. that. It's a little bit witchy there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but it is very much around, you know, how how do we get that person back without feeling like we're pressurising them to come yeah. back? And is it the right thing for them to do? So yeah. I just like the concept of her. I mean, obviously, our role has massively changed since, yeah. since she started. And she's also got an amazing name. So that's, Yeah, that's it's pretty a pretty awesome. cool name. <laughs> just out of interest, are there rules around, like, you know, if someone's off sick or they're long-term sick, how often HR phone them to sort of ask about how they're doing or... is is it's it completely all? dependent on the company. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And it's weird because it's often dependent on the manager. So I, I remember with a, I was dealing with a case and I'd spoken to this lady and she was off. Uh, she'd been diagnosed with cancer and she'd been off on full pay for six months. And I spoke to her and she was really upset. And she said, work have forgotten about me. Um, I've had no calls. There's been nothing. I had a card at the beginning. And then when I spoke to the manager, I just said, oh, you know, how's the contact gone? And he said, I've been so supportive. I've not contacted her at all. And it's oh. weird that his perception was that he felt he was supporting by not nagging yeah. or harassing her, whereas she felt completely isolated. So oh. it's back to that communication thing. Yeah, I suppose that is totally down to communication, isn't it? Mm. So you like French at school then? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you speak much of it now or not, really? Not really. Quite a few swear words, but that's about that's oh, it, which I won't say now. You need to know, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Where is my beer? Yeah. <laughs> and my Lady, cake. Lady Shul Civil Play. Yeah, you don't need to know much more than that. I lived in France for a year, and the first things I learned were all the swear words that you possibly could know because that's what oh, you too. You. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do um, a French exchange when I was growing up, and I'd spend hours down at the quayside waiting for, for English tourists to turn up, and I would say in very, very heavily accented French. Uh, yes, you just go up the road here and you keep going. Oh my gosh, your English is amazing. Oh, but we thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, it's funny. Don't blame me for doing that. I've done it myself. <laughs> so we're coming to the end of the podcast. I think I'm just going to ask you one last question. Let's see. We get all oh, your Pisces like me. Yay! So, all the best people are born in March or February. <laughs> oh, March. I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sunny, you're not in. So if you won 10 million tomorrow, what would you spend it on? My initial response to that was Sherry, but my team said I couldn't say that. <laughs> so we've had to change it to expanding the global empire. I was going to say it's a shed load of Sherry. <laughs> say that's a lot. Even if it was vintage, that's, that's like a, a couple of lifetime supply. You know, like if you had a little tipple every day, you'd never get through the lot of it, would you? Or you'd be an alcoholic or with cirrhosis of the liver and dead, maybe. I don't know. And but... then you'd be off long term sick yeah. and you'd have to call your own company. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'd know. I'd love to set up a training program for Rock Health. I think yeah, if I had the had the money and the backing, we could make a hell of a difference. Yeah. It would be it would be magic. In all seriousness, even without the money, is that something that's on the agenda down the line? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We've just written a, a level three qualification for technicians. So people who want to come into Rock Health but aren't nurses yeah. can now train to be technicians and, and do the hearing checks and the other bits and come Brilliant. out with a recognisable qualification. Oh, that so. sounds fantastic. Well, we wish you the best of luck with it and moving forward with it. It's been brilliant talking to you, Pippa. You too. And finding out all about occupational health. I feel like I know a lot more about it now. How about you, Sonny? 100%. Um, I mean, I had the website up in front of me. So oh, so you're cheating. So yeah. I was kind of... <laughs> Well, I was using my brain. I wasn't <laughs> cheating. Well, maybe I was cheating. Yeah, so we're coming towards the end of the uh, podcast with uh, Pippa Crouch from Global OHS. Um, thank you very much for joining us and for Faye for co-hosting uh, this session. 
Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hubbub, the Director's Hub podcast, sponsored by the Sussex Business Show. <laughs>